Let's all stand together at this time. We're going to be looking in Psalm 19 at a message I call errors. If you were here last week, uh, I preached a message I called unfinished, unfinished. And in a way, as I was preparing this one, I thought, well, maybe I should have preached this one first. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I just get them as the Lord uh, puts them on our hearts. So uh, that's uh, what we're going to be looking at today. Psalm 19, verse 12, the great question, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. Errors, mistakes, slip-ups, oopsies, failures. Call them whatever you want to. Uh, we say that to err is human. To cover it up is too, but uh, to err is human. And oh, how human we all are. If there's a line, we've crossed it. If there's a path, we've got off of it. Uh, if there's a rule, we've broken it. If it's a principle or a policy, we've violated it. It's called an error in this passage, but by any other name, it's something with which we're all too familiar, who can understand his errors. And when we think about errors and the human propensity to make them, this is placed in this psalm in stark juxtaposition uh, with the word of the Lord. Look at what he said in verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, much than, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. The judgments of the Lord. That speaks to us of God's truth that has been revealed to us so that we understand it, we see it. It is issues that we face and we have to make up our mind about. But as we look in God's Word, we find out that God has already made up His mind. And it's not changing. He's not just left it there uh, for Him to decide uh, what is going to be good and right or wrong. These are things that He has already decided, already put down for us. Therefore, we know that they are true. The judgment of the Lord, He said, are true and righteous altogether. And because of that, he said the word of the Lord is more precious than gold. Now we know about the gold standard. Uh, we know that gold is stable. It is a currency, if you will, that's recognized all over the world. There's nowhere that I'm familiar with that gold is going to be denied uh, as far as a transaction is concerned. Currencies to this day are still measured by how they stand against gold. It is that stable. It is that strong. But there is something that's more stable, more reliable, stronger, more valuable. And that's the Word of God. The judgments of the Lord are more of a treasure than fine gold. Not only that, but the psalmist tells us that it's sweet, and that means it's desirable. We know what that's like. 
We say we've got a sweet tooth. Uh, some people like sweets a lot. Uh, you know how it is. You know, we eat and we're full. But we need just a little something sweet. Yeah. You know how that is? Just a little something. Uh, the Word of God is not only valuable, true, reliable, solid, stable, but it is also sweet. Now, it's that time of the year when we all engage in our national obsession, uh, if you will, of losing and or gaining weight. We talked about that last week. But, uh, you know, if uh, you're struggling on the losing weight side, maybe we could try that. And if you're craving sweets, think about the Word of God. Pick up your Bible. Leave the pie alone. And... Uh, Give yourself a little sweet truth for your sweet tooth. How's that? Um, the Word of God is sweet, sweeter than honey. It gives us both warning and reward. It tells us what not to do and what to do, and it rewards us when we follow it. It's clean, it endures, it's more precious than gold. It warns us, it rewards us, but we mess up. Word of God is reliable, but we mess up. And when he asks us then if we can, who can understand his errors, it's set against that context. Considering how great the Word of God is, how clear the Word of God is, how true it is, how reliable it is, how strong it is, how sweet it is, how is it that we as God's people who have God's Word available to us like we do, how is it that we still mess up? When the path is so clearly laid out for us, how is it that we miss it? When we're told so clearly not to do things, how is it that we do them anyway? How can we understand our errors? Now, when he asks us the question, if we uh, can understand, who can understand his errors, there isn't that a kind of a complex reference to the idea that uh, really, we, we can't even track our errors. We don't know how many, uh, really, that there are. If we started trying to count up and list all of our sins in the last year, we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. We can't, know, we can't keep track of them. Uh, we don't know, then, why we do them. There's that idea in the, in the question as well. Why? Why did I do that? All of us occasionally find ourselves asking that question. Why? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why? We don't know uh, the source of them. We don't know their number. We don't know their nature. We don't know their source. And I think Paul was talking about that in Romans chapter 7 when he very famously described how that there are things that he wants to do that he doesn't do. There are things that he doesn't want to do that he does do. And he said, when I do then what I don't want to do and I don't do what I do want to do, he said, I consent that there is something else in me. There is a law that's working in my members because I want to do good, but I don't do good. There's something in me, I may not can put my finger on it, I may not know what it is, but something in me that keeps me from doing what I want to do and keeps me doing what I don't want to do. I can't figure out what triggers it all the time. I don't know what it is maybe that causes it to happen. I don't know what pushes its buttons or brings it to the surface. I err and I don't know why I mess up and I don't know why. 
But the psalmist doesn't leave us in that situation. He asks the question. But in a somewhat complicated passage, though it's complex, in a way it's kind of simple, uh, but he describes for us then the answer to that question. Uh, If I can say then, I don't understand why I do the things I do, sometimes there's an answer. And he brings them to us. Now, I'll start with this this principle this morning because that's the one he started with. There are errors, and then there are errors. There are errors, but then there are errors. Psalm 19 and 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. There are errors. And then he says, there are errors. Now, most of us can readily identify that there would be a difference between, well, I made a mistake, I slipped up, something was wrong, I had a failure, something went wrong in my life, I messed up a bit. And we might contrast that then, though, with the great transgression. The great transgression. There is a whole discussion in the matter of sin, a debate, if you will. Uh, Some people have taken the side, well, you know, sin is sin. There's not a such thing as a big sin or a little sin. Uh, Not just uh, uh, sin is sin. And there's room for that. I can take that debate if you want to debate it. I could argue that point for you. And in fact, I believe I just will. Uh, Because the Bible says, Whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, James chapter 2, if I remember correctly, Whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. I just got to wondering, just exactly, according to Jewish tradition, how many principles there are in the law of Moses. And so I looked that up this week, did a little study on it, and it turned out that the word Torah uh, actually meant to 611. I didn't know that. You still learn things, and you keep studying the Word of God. There's more to learn all the times. Uh, the word Torah meant 611. There's 611 laws, instructions. But they left out uh, a two, two that they said came from God Himself, Uh, And that is the royal law. Thou shalt love the Lord with all thy heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so adding those two then, 613. 613, according to Jewish teachings in the law of Moses. Now, if you take a test this week, and there are 613 questions, and you get 612 right, You know what? That's over 99%. And you're going to make an A in any course of study that you want to pick out. 613 questions. You get one wrong, you make an A. But James said in James chapter 2 and verse 20, whosoever should keep the whole law, 613 and yet offend in one point, is guilty of all. So when it comes to God's test, 
613. If you miss one, you make a zero. You say, that's not fair. If you're thinking that's not fair, it's because you don't understand the test. You don't understand what the law of Moses was designed to do. See, number one, the law of Moses gave to us the commandments of God that illustrated for us God's righteousness. So the law of Moses was designed to illustrate the righteousness of God. And the second thing then the law of Moses was designed to illustrate was that we fall short of that. God sets the standard. We don't keep it. Now you go back and start reading in the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus and you're going to find a lot of strange rules and, and obscure things. You say, what is that stuff all about? Well, I'll admit to you some of the things that God put in the law had to do with the pagan cultures that were around them. And the fact is that God intended for His people to be different. Many of those laws related to the way that these people around them worshiped their gods. God wanted them to be different. God wanted them to be different. And so many of those rules were relating to those ancient people and those ancient practices and those ancient religions. But bottom line, when you get down to it, they had to do with the way they lived morally, their moral requirements, their requirements then on the way they treated each other and the way they treated their God. Jesus himself said that. When he talked about that moral law, the royal law rather, he said, we love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength. We love our neighbors as ourselves. What did he go on and say? On this hangs all the law and the prophets. That's what it's all about. How we treat each other, how we relate to our God. Guess what? In both of those areas, we fall pitifully short. We fall short. We err. And so here is the law of God on the one hand that tells us what to do, what not to do. And we, we fall short of that. We err. And the psalmist understands that. Who can understand his errors? And so when we think about sin in general... And we want to ask the question, well, how much sin do you have to do? What kind of sin is some sin? Is sin worse than others? Are there some sins that are worse than others? There is indeed a sense in which sin is sin. And if we ask ourselves, how much sin do you have to have to be declared a sinner? Just one. Just one. Whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point is guilty of all. Okay? But then there's the other side of it too. While that is true, sin is sin, no big sin, no little sin, just any sin, whosoever should keep the whole law, dead offended in one point is guilty of law, yet, yet there is, it is also true that the psalmist talks about great transgressions. And we can see, I think, there's a difference between errors and great transgressions. There has to be. We know that. So between those two things, you'll see very quickly there's some things put in the middle. 
Cleanse me, he says, from secret faults. Now, when we think about the secret faults, we'll immediately think maybe, or maybe you won't, but we'll think, well, we're talking about those hidden things that nobody else knows about me and God. That's not what he's talking about. That's what Job's three friends, <laughs> oh boy, if you got friends like Job had friends, <laughs> nobody needs enemies if you got friends like, but Job's three friends came to him, and that's exactly what they said to him. Job, all these calamities have happened to you. Here we thought you were an upright man, but all this bad stuff happens to you. You've been sinning on the sly. God's known about it. He's getting to you. Might as well fess up. Just go ahead and tell us what you've been up to. Secret sins. That's what they accused him of. Job vehemently defended himself against that charge, and rightly so. Secret sins. Maybe that's what we're thinking about in this passage, but that's not what the psalmist is talking about. Secret sins, in this sense, has a reference to something that I'm sinning and I don't even know about it. Now, that tells you uh, something about what our problem is. If you can sin without even knowing you're sinning, that's some sneaky stuff. But he goes on and tells us specifically what it is that he's thinking about. What is it that is a secret sin, so secretive that it's secretive and even unto me? Presumptuous sins. Lord, keep me, he says, from presumptuous sins. Secret sins. Presumptuous sins. These are sins that relate to the issue of pride. Pride. The chances are pretty good that if we started confessing our sins right now, pride would not make our list. And it's not just pride, but it's all the things that go along with pride. Presumptuousness would be one of them. Selfishness, self-centeredness. Pride. When God gave a list in Proverbs 18, I believe it is, of the seven things that he hates, pride was number one on his list. Pride. The fact is that we can be eat up with pride and not know it. We can be eat up with selfishness. We can be totally selfish, totally self-preoccupied. And we deny it. Somebody accuses you, well, you're just arrogant. I'm not arrogant, even though we're being arrogant. I'm not proud, and we've just been being proud. I'm not haughty, and we've just been haughty. I'm not selfish, and we've just been selfish. This is the kind of sin, presumptuous sin, that is a secret sin. It is secretive to us. We can be eat up with it and not know it. Other people around us do. We don't. We're blind to it. We're immune. We just don't see it. God sees it. That's why the psalmist, I think, said in Psalm 139, Lord, search me and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in thy way everlasting. He was crying out to God, God, show me if I've got this going on in my heart because I won't see it. It's a secret to me. The psalmist points out to us that we can be dominated by it. These sins can actually dominate us, dominate us. To the point <laughs> that we're being completely motivated in all that we do by pride, by haughty spirit, 
by presumptuousness, arrogance, moving along in selfishness, and be completely blind to it. And it leads us then, he says, into some great transgression. And a lot of times then when we're asking the question, how, how did I get to this place? Where did my error come from? He immediately moves then to warn us about these secretive, presumptuous sins that lead us into great error. Bring up the next slide for me, guys. And when I tell you that there's a connection then between these presumptuous sins and doing some terrible thing, you see, I'm, I'm not just making that up. Uh, actually, the next slide is not what I thought because the next slide was going to be, <laughs> I thought, and this isn't their fault, it's mine. I've had a little technical malfunction up here and probably up there too this morning. It's nobody's fault. It just happens. That's all right. We'll just move on. But the Bible says that pride goes before what? Destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. See, I didn't make it up. I don't understand why my errors came. I don't understand where this sinfulness came. I don't understand why this great, terrible transgression entered into my life. I don't understand where it came from. A lot of times we had a secret sin going on that we didn't know about. We'd let ourselves get prideful, arrogant, haughty, self-absorbed. And it led us then down this predictable path to a great transgression because pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Have I got your attention yet this morning? I hope so. Because when I tell you, you can have a sin that you can be absolutely eat up with and not even know it. Other people around you may know it, but you had not seen it. And it can bring you down to the point that you'll be doing something you thought you would never do. A great transgression. That's something to be concerned about. Which brings us then to the second thing. <clears throat> Mouth and meditation. Mouth and meditation. Because he brings that up to us then for a reason. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Because when we're talking about our primary sources of error, what are we talking about? What we say. Amen. Yeah. And what we think about. Two primary sources of error. There's probably not a person in this building this, that hasn't already this year said something you shouldn't have said. <laughs> I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, okay? I'm not. I'll just go ahead and raise my hand. I have something we shouldn't have said. We've thought something we shouldn't have thought. So one of the most frequent sources of error in all of our life is what we say and what we think about. What's in our hearts what comes out of our lips. And of course, it's a connection between those. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our most frequent source of error is our mouth and our meditation. 
our mouth, what we say. I don't think I have to go in on a long uh, discussion about that this morning. Uh, let's just remember that what God, what we hear, what we say, God hears. We know that because Jesus said we'll give an account for every idle word. Now, throughout history, perhaps people have wondered how it is that we can actually be held accountable for our words because our words are spoken, they go away. Maybe there was somebody there to hear them and that was it. Uh, but, but how can we be held accountable for that? <laughs> well, in the last few years with our technology, we have found out that we can be held accountable for the things we say, the things we write, the things we put on social media never, ever, ever go away. They could be drugged back up years and years down the road. But more important than social media, we need to understand God is listening to what we say. And we'll be held accountable for what we say. And maybe it would help us then to avoid some of our errors if we could just figure out that before we reach up there and put that drive shaft into gear, <laughs> Uh, to let our mouth turn loose. We need to engage our brain first and think about the fact that God holds us accountable for what we say and ask ourselves the question, is this something that I'm thinking about saying? Is that going to please God? When God hears it, is He going to be pleased? Then He talks about meditations. Now, this is an interesting concept because this is not just something that we think about. It's not just a thought that lands on our head. When we're talking about meditation, this is something that we're going over and over and over and over and over again. Part of our problem, you see, when it comes to our errors is that we end up meditating on things that should be just a passing thought. One of my seminary professors used the classic example when he said, you cannot keep a bird from landing on your head, but you can keep him from building a nest there. And he went on to explain the fact that, uh, you know, a bird landing on your head. I've never had a bird land on my head, but it does seem like an inviting target. It really does. And I can understand I'm kind of a tall guy. It might happen someday. If a bird lands on my head, that's not my fault. If it builds a nest there, it is my fault. You understand? big part of our problem is we end up meditating on things that should just be a passing thought. We put these things together then, what we talk about, what we say, what we think about. We put them together with those presumptuous sins of pride and selfishness, and we begin to see how this thing works, how it builds, how it develops, how it grows. I've been wronged. Been, I've been slandered, I've, I've been libeled, I've, I've been cheated. Somebody said something wrong. Somebody took something that belonged to me. Something I didn't get something I deserved. After all, I am kind of a big shot, and I, I deserve special treatment. I, I didn't get what I deserved. I, I, I didn't have happen to me what should have happened to me. I didn't get what I wanted for Christmas. And I'm mad about it. Whatever. But we begin to meditate on it. 
We bring that thing around and around. And you know what? Every time we bring it around, it gets bigger and bigger. The loop grows wider and wider. In our selfishness, then we begin to feel like we're being mistreated. And that's a dangerous feeling for us to cultivate. We speak it to our mind. We're meditating on it. We're bringing it around inside of our head. We may not be speaking it aloud. We're speaking it in an even worse place because we're speaking it to ourself and our heart. And we're building this thing up and building this thing up. And before long, we find ourselves then out in some terrible sin, something we thought we shouldn't have done, that we've convinced ourselves we're entitled to. I deserve it. We've written ourselves out a free pass. I didn't put all these things together. The psalmist did. Presumptuous sins. What we say what we think about or what we think about saying, meditation. Now, at the end of all of this then, the psalmist gives us a, a great passage or points us to that great thought when he talks about my strength and my redeemer. If we just had to close out with our mouth in meditation, it would be kind of a sad thing. Because we'd talk about, I don't understand why I do what I do. Don't understand where my error came from. And then he tells us that our error is connected to this presumptuous sin. I've let pride in my life, selfishness, self-centeredness, uh, arrogance, perhaps haughtiness. I've let a haughty spirit come in my life. Um, I have said things I shouldn't have said to somebody. Uh, I have meditated on things that I shouldn't have meditated on. I've let passing thoughts that maybe should have just hit my mind and move on. Uh, but I've just meditated on them and meditated on them until it can lead me into some presumptuous, terrible, big sin. But he didn't leave us there. There's strength, he says, in our redemption. There's strength in our redemption. And see a great passage then where uh, we can see how that redemption plays out in the strength in relation to this concept and our sin and our practices. Uh, we'd have to go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, and it's a long reading. It's so long that it took up three slides, or it used to. I, I can't tell you what it is now. I'm going to have to put my glasses on so I can read it. Uh, <clears throat> For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, there's our redemption. Simon Peter reminds us of what we were redeemed with, uh, not with silver and gold. Not with your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. You were bought at a high price. The precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He reminds us then of the authentication of our redemption. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. That God's not operating on plan B here. But was manifest in these last times for you. Who do believe in God that raised him up from the dead. You see we believe in the one who died. But not just died. They buried him. But he didn't stay buried. He rose again. He defeated our ultimate enemy. Death and hell. So that our redemption. Stands in his victory. Not mine. The authentication then of our redemption. Is the resurrection from the dead. Let's go on guys. Next slide. 
seeing you have purified your souls in and obeying the truth of the Spirit and the unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart, fervently being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever for all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass, the grass withereth, and the flower thereof fadeth away, but the Word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. And I'm just reading you this because Simon Peter's talking about our redemption, our new birth experience, the fact that we are saved by the grace of God, what God has done in our life. If you're saved this morning, say amen and thank you, Jesus. I'm saved. Thank you. Chapter 2, verse 1. Wherefore? Wherefore, this is what he does with that. Remember your redemption? Remember when you got born again, when you were saved? Remember when you trusted Jesus Christ and he delivered you from the power of darkness? And he transported you to the kingdom of Israel. You remember what Jesus did for you when he saved you? Wherefore, laying aside all malice, Guile, hypocrisies, envies, and evil speakings as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Uh, I don't have time to preach on all of that passage this morning. We're out of time. I, I, I need to wrap this up. Let's just talk about those three words. Malice, guile, which means bitterness, and hypocrisy. You see, the, the psalmist was talking about that connection, that connection between the presumptuous sins of our heart that then plays out maybe into us writing ourselves out a, a blank check to do something evil, some big sin, some terrible thing we never thought we'd do that leads us wondering, where did this come from? Well, where it came from was pride goes before destruction and haughty spirit before fall. Simon Peter shows us how this plays out sometimes. Malice, you see, comes from, it is a seething hostility, something we have on the inside of us, anger, we're mad at somebody. Seething hostility that comes from a feeling that we've been done bad. Somebody's done us wrong. I'm not saying that they didn't really do you wrong. Okay, I'm not saying that. Malice, though, comes when someone has done us wrong and we take it on the inside. I remind you, as I had before, of what Adrian Rogers once said about malice. He said, malice is like drinking strychnine poison and expecting somebody else to die. Malice is when we internalize those feelings of hostility towards somebody who has done us wrong. That leads us then to bitterness. It creates a root of bitterness in our hearts. It's right there, guile. Malice to guile to hypocrisy. How does hypocrisy play out? Well, I'm so mad at Jason Goodwin, I can't stand it. I, I'm going to get him. He did me wrong. I'm going to get him. I'm, I'm so mad at him. Oh, I tell you, one of these days, I'm, I'm not going to get even. No, I'm going to get ahead. I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him bad. And I can't wait. Hey, Brother Goodwin, how are you? It's so good to see you. Thank you, Jason, for being a good sport. 
I didn't even tell him I was going to do that. <laughs> Hypocrisy. To evil speaking. See how it plays out? It's right there in the text. But it's not enough for God just to tell us, put this thing away. He has to give us something else to do. And we can learn this lesson this morning if we want to. We can feed our hearts all the maliciousness that we want to feed it. We can meditate on all this evil stuff. And I'm going to tell you something. There's part of your heart that loves it. Once it gets a taste for it, it loves it. And you can feed it, and your heart will feast on it. But you need to take a long look at where it leads you. Because the scripture shows you very plainly where it goes. But instead, we can feed ourselves the Word of God. Remember how sweet it is? <laughs> Remember how wholesome it is? Remember how trustworthy it is, how nourishing it is. Like a newborn baby taking in that mother's milk, just exactly what it needs. When that's the only thing that that newborn babe has a hunger for because it's never had anything else and God himself had to give them that hunger for it and they're born with it and They've got that reflex, and they know how to eat. And that's the only thing I've got a hunger for. Like a newborn babe, seek after the sincere milk of the Word. So that we're, when we're tempted to meditate on these evil things and feed our hearts what it doesn't need, we instead can feed it the Word of God that it does need. And the Word of God has a remarkable way of reminding ourselves that we're not really as big and important and significant as we think we are. The Word of God has a remarkable way of reminding us that anything good about me is because I'm saved by grace. It's by the grace of God. It comes to me through Jesus Christ. If it's left up to me, I'd probably be dead by now. But for the grace of God, who loved me, gave himself for me. Takes that pride right out of us. Puts us on our knees where we belong, feasting on the word of God, what we need. God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let's stand together, please.